When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Today's episode starts with our weekly Clark Stink segment. I can't wait. Later, I want to talk about something that is vocabulary you may not be familiar with, ADU, Accessory Dwelling Units. I want to explain what they are and what role they may play in fattening your wallet or lowering the cost of housing that you need. And before we get to Clark Stinks, I want to thank you for listening and hope you get a chance to visit our websites, clark.com and clarkdeals.com. The whole goal, providing you information that you can trust, that you can use in your wallet. And while you're there, hey, we got a bunch of free newsletters. You'd like those? We got those for you. Get them if you find, well, they're not really serving you. Then dump the subscription to them. But I bet you'll find great money-saving, money-making advice from our free newsletters. But without further ado, it's time for Clark Stinks. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. So I just want you to know, Krista, who's been with me since 1997, this is her favorite segment. Oh my gosh, favorite moments of her week every week when she gets to uh, give me the feedback that I need. You know, I've worked with you for so long and I never thought you were a liar before, but now I definitely do because you know it pains me, but you find this fun. I find Clark Stinks to be so valuable because when you do what I do, you can get set in your opinions and you can kind of get intellectually lazy. And Clark Stinks really helps me because you, by going to clark.com slash Clark Stinks and posting... You're giving me feedback. I might not always agree with it. Uh, There are times that you're obviously very right and I missed something. There are times I also learn I didn't explain something well. So this is really helpful to me when you take the time to post on Clark Stinks. And without further delay, Krista. All right. Well, this one was very popular. I got so many Clark Stinks about you talking about, well, answering the Walmart Plus uh, question. I love your podcast and app, Clark, and you don't stink, but your knowledge of Walmart Plus does. Before you submit the order, you have the option to adjust the tip to one of three set amounts or a custom option. You also have 24 hours after the delivery to adjust bases on the service. I hope this helps, Chris. Thank you very much, Chris. And as I said at the time when I took the prior complaint about Walmart Plus, I've never used the Walmart Plus grocery delivery. I've only used the delivery of goods, and there is no tipping involved with the delivery of goods, which are usually done 
third party like uh, FedEx, UPS, whatever. So um, I'm really grateful for all the people who provided the knowledge that you set the tip as you wish, use a preset or a specific, and the fact that after the fact, based on getting really great service or not so much, that you can adjust it. So thank you. Clark, you stink. You gave bad travel advice. You said don't book through the hotel website nor join their rewards program, but you are missing out on big savings. By booking as a preferred member or elite member or whatever they have for a sign-up program, you're missing the best rates that only go to those who do sign up. Example rate could be $140 per night, but for members, it's $120. I only book through the hotel website and join their member rate program to get the best deals. Also, I've been in a hotel and witnessed someone who had a reservation through one of the third-party booking sites get shut down even though they had the reservation. The third-party sites overbook and you could be left with no room when you check in. Sean. Sean, thank you for your post. All right. So when I talked about how I book hotels, I may not have mentioned that I'm a member of IHG hotel program, the Marriott hotel program, the Hyatt, the Hilton. Uh, Who am I missing? Um, I'm a member of the Sinesta program. I mean, I've got memberships of probably every hotel program there is out there. Uh, Drury hotels. I could keep naming. And I find, though, that, yes, they do have their member rates. And there are times that the member rate will be the best rate. But almost always, I find I overwhelmingly use Priceline, and I find that the rates I got on Priceline are cheaper than I can get from the hotel chain. When a hotel walks somebody and uses the excuse, oh, that third-party site overbooks, that's generally not how it works anymore. Before you have your confirmation from the third-party site, they have already connected to the central mainframe of the chain or the individual location and you will have both the local hotel's confirmation number and the Priceline confirmation number. Works the same on Hotwire. A lot of other third-party sites, I can't say for sure that's how it works. But the hotel saying that's the reason somebody's walked is not generally accurate. They're just coming up with an excuse because hotels do overbook and somebody ends up being the walk that's what they call it when they say yeah you had a reservation you paid for it but we don't care we're walking you and then the thing about getting a better price through one of the third party sites versus joining the program since you're a member you can see that you right actually so i so i always comparison shop and so i'll check the hotel chain website and see what my member rate is I also check, I'm pretty pretty cheap, so I check AAA, I check senior rate because I'm old enough to be a senior. I check all these things, and then I compare them to what I can get at Priceline. I believe you missed the mark when providing guidance to see if a criminal has already filed a tax return against your account. You suggested using Where's My Refund tool on the IRS website to check your refund status. To do this, you must provide a social security number, filing status, and refund amount. There is no way to know the refund amount if someone has already filed a fictitious return on your behalf. I would suggest for the late filers like myself, the O every year, to go ahead and file as soon as possible 
without remitting the balance due and then submit their payment in April on the IRS website before the tax deadline. Thanks for your service, Yemi. And Yemi, you are right. What you said is true. You have to have the the three pieces of data in order to use, where's my refund? So my advice does not work. Your advice does work. And you pointed out something that most people don't know. If you owe money when you file your return, it doesn't mean you have to pay that money when you file the return. You just have to pay by the tax due date, which this year is the 18th, I think, uh, rather than the 15th because of when the holiday falls, if I remember right. But you don't have to file and pay at the same time. You can go ahead and file. Yes, the 18th. 18th. Go ahead and file. And then when you, when you hit that tax date of the 18th this year, that's when you pay the money you owe. Clark seemed to endorse a listener's idea of putting in random digits in the social security number field for selling tickets through the Ticketmaster monopoly. This is not a Clark smart idea. It is identity theft. Putting in random digits could give an unsuspecting third party major problems with the IRS. It was just a few weeks ago that Clark walked back his bad advice on avoiding income reporting by using cash. He needs to do the same thing here, Sean. Sean, okay, so I guess I failed to mention at that time that if you put in your actual social, but the two middle digits you put in zero, zero, that it will go through and you won't have harmed anybody else because zero, zero is not going to be the middle numbers on a social security number. You can also Google, there are uh, suggestions or any search engine of using a made-up social security number that would not be anybody else's number. Clark, your suggestion of using a religious health co-op instead of having health insurance really stinks. We get auto and homeowners insurance to protect our assets. Why would we not have insurance for this million-dollar-plus risk? Not having health insurance is among the leading causes of bankruptcy, and that was from Bob. Bob, you are right that um, medical bills are the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. It's a huge problem for people. So the, the religious-based co-ops for medical bills did not come alive out of a vacuum. They came alive because a lot of people who had to buy their own coverage could not afford or felt they could not afford insurance on the healthcare exchange. And so instead of doing that, the religious co-ops gave them a way to have some coverage, but it obviously is not comprehensive. It's very different because in the religious-based co-ops, you don't have typically the big out-of-pocket. They cover the routine kind of stuff that with traditional health insurance, you've got the deductibles for. The problem is you so properly brought up is that if you have a major illness, the religious-based co-ops aren't guaranteeing they're going to pay for that major illness. And a religious-based co-op faced with uh, just a few catastrophic illnesses among their membership base could run out of money. And so what you said is true, but a lot of people like the religious-based co-ops for the much lower premiums and the fact that it covers routine things that otherwise 
might be out of pocket for someone with traditional health insurance. I don't use a religious co-op. I use traditional health insurance. I do so for my family. But it is a choice in the marketplace, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I ignored that it exists. On a recent podcast, Clark mentioned that when traveling abroad, it is better for your U.S.-based credit card to be charged in the national currency. We lived in Bolivia, South America for 18 years. While living there, we used our card regularly. Some of the grocery stores and hospitals gave the best exchange, even better than the banks. Our bills were generated in the national currency and then converted back to U.S. dollars. And that's from Tony. Okay, Tony, I appreciate that. And um, I want to say something. You had the privilege of living in Bolivia for 18 years. I've had the privilege of visiting it once, and it's a place I've been really wanting to go back to. And it's uh, like no Americans ever go there for tourism. And it was uh, one of the highlights of all the places I've ever visited in the world. Mm. And I appreciate your feedback on how you've handled money in those years. And yes, when you get into developing countries, there are very specific rules of the road that you learn on the ground about how to do your transactions and handle money that may well be different than the normal advice I give. Clark, just ranting here, many financial experts, including you, keep referring to the Roth IRA as tax-free, when, as you know, it should be called the tax-prepaid. The sec- second, the low state tax rates are us- always used to attract new residents when the overall tax burden is what really matters. That puts most states in the middle of the pack. Dave. Dave, thank you. And you may have just missed on another podcast. I took that into consideration. I'm dealing with the second thing first. The tax rates is uh, overall tax burden on a middle income earner. And it was an analysis that Kiplinger did that found that the states that had the lowest overall tax burden on middle-income earners were not necessarily who you'd think. And they took all the taxes that people paid and ran them through their database and came up with the 10 lowest overall tax burden states. On the issue of calling the Roth IRA as tax prepaid, okay, You're trying to hurt me here. Okay, I'm trying to get people to save more money, okay? But the earnings are not, the earnings are tax-free. Right, the earnings are tax-free. The growth over the years, what you have in the account is all tax-free. Where with a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k, you get a tax benefit up front by putting in pre-tax dollars, But then that creates a tax time bomb that down at the end of the road, everything you have in the account is taxed. And because that then becomes reported income, it can hurt you on other benefits that you might be getting in retirement, cause a tax problem with the IRS, with your Social Security, blah, blah, blah. Even what you pay for uh, Medicare Part B, you could affect. So... Yes, it is true that technically I should be calling a Roth IRA as a tax prepaid because it's true. It's your after-tax dollars that go in, but the freedom it gives you and the flexibility that the Roth gives you 
decades down the road makes it, in my opinion, superior and using the language you use, it's going to make people seem like, well, that doesn't sound like such a great deal. And I really want people to do the Ross because in addition, this is where I'm a terrible, underhanded, dishonest person. Okay, if somebody is going to put $2,000 in an IRA, they'll tend to put the same $2,000 into a traditional and they'll put that same $2,000 into a Roth. They won't put less in because they'll think, oh, okay, so a Roth is after-tax dollars. They put the same amount of money in, but effectively, they boosted the amount of money they're saving for retirement by a big amount because they used after-tax dollars that will then grow tax-free, and effectively, they have much more money in retirement. So there's a method to my underhandedness there. You had a question about the ESPP and you missed an opportunity for free money. Most ESPPs have a two to three day holding period and then you can sell the stock. A great plan is to participate and then sell it right away after this short holding period and pocket the 15% discount immediately. Yes, you may pay short-term capital gains tax and a nominal sell the stock fee, but you should still come out way ahead. And by doing this, you aren't having too much invested in your employer, whose future may not be as rosy as you probably imagine. Thanks, and my 11-year-old son loves listening to you with me in the car, Nicholas. Nicholas, uh, your point is really interesting because you're saying that I let the, the tax tail wag the dog. What's that expression? Mm -hmm. Tail wag the dog. That I'm always so bad at those phrases. (laughs) Anyway, that uh, having the sure thing of the 15% instant return makes it worth it to avoid the marketplace risk of what would happen with the employer stock and paying the higher ordinary income tax instead of long-term capital gains. And you are right that people have a bias built in where they assume their employer is doing better than the employer actually is. It's just a thing baked into how our brains process. Um, I have always, by my own behavior, I've always waited through the holding period to then be able to benefit from long-term capital gains tax. I've done three of these purchase plans over the years. Twice it worked out for me great because the employer stock did go up a lot over that one-year holding period. Third time, not so much. Coming up next, I'm going to talk about why ADUs are so important to housing affordability, the role they're going to play, and how they could either boost your income or save you money on what it costs you to live. So there's a lot of factors going on in American society that make my forever obsession with what now has a name and didn't when it became my obsession decades ago, ADUs, accessory dwelling units. If you've listened to me for any number of years uh, over the last uh, 35 years, that's how long I've been doing this, 35 years, that's a long time. Anyway, if you've been listening to me, you know that I believe so much in having a place to live in and a place that makes you money too. And the cheapest rental properties there ever are are ADUs. An ADU is just a term for meaning like a garage apartment 
a basement apartment, um, a little structure that, depending on zoning where you live, you're able to put that structure up. And the land you've already covered, what you purchased, if you take space that's already in your footprint and it becomes a rental property, the advantage to you over the years is gigantic. And you have your privacy. I mean, I love the ADU thing. But there's also other uses of it that are so great. You know, there was a study recently that found that 20% of Americans, one in five of us now lives in what's known as a multi-generational, meaning that under the roof, you have three generations minimum living under that roof. And that's one in five of us living that way. Well, sometimes there's too much closeness all living under that one roof. But if you have a garage apartment, a basement apartment, or whatever, then there's a real opportunity there for you to have uh, a parent, you know, uh, you know, having the three generations under a roof, but still they have their privacy, you have your privacy, but you're right there with each other when that works. There's a lot of multi-generational now with grandparents taking care of grandkids while the parents work. There's all kinds of uses of this. And my all-time favorite was I learned this so long ago in 1974. One of my college professors had a home that she owned right near the university in what was a very expensive part of town. And one day she was talking about the fact that her tenants, and she had one of the, she lived in the basement in one of the little what would be rentals. She had another tenant over the garage and she rented the main part of the house to somebody else. She was making more money on her home than she was making as our professor. I mean, that's crazy, right? If it's just you and you'd like to invest, living in that kind of way can make you so much money. And now zoning laws are changing in a lot of communities in the United States. This is very controversial about allowing small structures to be added to an existing property. Typically, the structures are 600 square feet or less, and they're like cottages, and they can be a rental, and it creates that income. Once you think about this versus a traditional rental property, you've got to buy that whole thing. You've got all that overhead to overcome, but an existing house where you can have rental income in the basement, I know Floridians, I'm sorry, I know there's no basements, but anyway, it could be over a garage or an added on area with a separate entrance. This is a real opportunity that deals with the extreme shortage of housing we have in the United States. And if you're having to buy a place and the costs are, you're just wheezing on, 
if you're able to get rental income out of it and still have your own privacy, this can all work for you. And so this is part, a partial solution for the high cost of housing for the purchaser of the property and for renters who are having trouble finding affordable housing because we are just flat out millions of housing units short in the United States. And we're on trend line. It's going to take a while to solve that. And so think about how this fits in your life, how there's potential additional income for you or defraying the cost of the home you have. And at the extreme, you could do what that professor did in 1974 and live in one of the small parts of the house and rent out everything else. Krista? This was from Valerie in Maine. She says, here's a tip. We decided to buy a newer car and we took Clark's advice. The upsell for the extended everything was ridiculous. The manufacturer offered Gap, 5-in-1 bundle, permapaint, interior, VSA coverage for electronics. VSA coverage. It, I, that might that be is. the brand. Um, luxury care at a prepaid repair service, and paint protection film. All of this would have cost $11,289. Wait, 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 wait. A used car? No, this was a new one. They bought no, a new she car. said newer car. Oh, newer. Yes. Okay. So I assume. Yes. This would have cost that much over a 60-month loan. They could offer ha, us an extended six months payment to cover the cost. So 66 months. I forcefully said no to everything and the 60-month loan. If I hadn't been listening and paying attention, I would be stuck in five years of loan and loans for additional warranties. Thank you, Clark and team. You helped me know what I did not need. They were very sweet until the no showed up. Okay, I love that you held your ground there, Valerie. You stuck to your principles and you didn't let them run you over with $11,000 plus and stuff. Now, let me tell you something about the grind at dealers. So the grind is where they hope you get hungry, they keep you there multiple hours, they hope you get dehydrated, you finally reach the deal on the purchase of the vehicle, and then you're turned over to the closer, the F and what they call traditional as a mail-oriented business, the F&I man, even if it's a woman, the finance and insurance department. That's where all the profit is made in a dealership selling new and used vehicles is that experienced person who tries to sell you every kind of add-on imaginable plus a high-cost vehicle loan and an ultra-long-term one, too. you got to know how the game's played. You want to buy your vehicle as much as possible, arranging it online in advance. You want to arrange your financing in advance. And the answer to all the add-ons is no. Now, the reality is, if everybody said no, dealers would be in big trouble. But, it, but the reality is most people don't do their homework and most people are buying all this add-on stuff that you knew not to buy. This is a story from David in New Jersey. The other day, my 85-year-old mom received a dubious email from a friend who needed help. In quotes, she received a similar email from this person a year ago, and she's learned to be very skeptical of all emails. She was just going to delete it. However, she decided to call the numbers she had for this person. When she called the third contact number, a voice answered, but she did not recognize the voice as her friend, which made my mother more concerned. The person said, I'm having a difficult time and need help. My mom, concerned the scam may be more sinister, asked what the problem was, and the voice replied, I think I'm having a stroke. 
Sensing now that this might actually be her friend, she asked, would you like me to call 911? And the voice answered yes. Well, she called 911 and rushed across town to her friend's house and the ambulance had already arrived. Her friend was indeed having a stroke. Yes, the email was fake, but the stroke was real. So ironically, it may have saved a life. Okay, that is the most convoluted wild story ever. Wow. I know. So it all started with a scammy email. But she did the right thing. She didn't respond to the email. She called the number she had for that person. Wow. Wow. Okay, so today, if you were the scammer that sent that email, feel good about yourself. (laughs) You may have saved a life. This is from John in Ohio. I bought a five-year warranty on my couch. Recently, the seat cushion supports failed. When I submitted the claim, they asked when the failure happened. I put in a date two months prior. They denied my claim because I had to notify them within 30 days of the failure, even though I'm within the five-year extended warranty. How do I resolve this? They say all decisions are final. Okay, so the first thing, John, you have now warned everybody You don't buy a warranty on your tennis shoes. You don't buy a warranty on your sofa. This whole warranty thing is such a ripoff. And as you've shown, usually that ripoff migrates into scam because these things are sold by retailers with no intention to ever pay if anybody actually does file a claim. So what you do is you march back into that retailer where you bought the couch that sold you the garbage five-year warranty and sold you a couch that fell apart in two years or however long. Recently, they failed. So we don't know how, how old the sofa yeah, we was. We just know it was point. within the five years. It was in the five years. John, it is the retailer who's the one who needs to satisfy you. And you don't go in and you don't go in with, you know, with a temp or anything like that. You want to know who the general manager is of that store. You want to make an appointment with him or her. You tell them the problem you're having. They're the ones that made a huge markup selling you the trashy warranty. They're the ones that need to satisfy you. Please let me know how you do. Remember, do not lose your temper Be polite, but be persistent to get results. And that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did providing this content to you.